let it all out. I said, I'll make a clean breast of my failures to God. Suddenly the pressure was gone. My guilt dissolved. My sin disappeared. These things add up. Every one of us needs to pray. When all hell breaks loose and the dam bursts, we'll be on high ground, untouched. God's my island hideaway, keeps danger far from the shore, throws garlands of hosannas around my neck. Celebrate God. Sing together, everyone. All you honest hearts, raise the roof. Worth getting up in the morning. In the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke, Jesus tells three familiar stories. The story of the lost sheep, the story of the lost coin, and the parable of the prodigal son. 
perhaps one of his most famous, if not the most famous parable Jesus ever told. When I first arrived at Central, I had been in Midway and serving Midway Baptist Church for about 11 years and still lived in Midway as I traveled back and forth to Lexington and lived in Midway. And so after about a month of being gone from the church, I ran into a church member and asked how things were going. And they had contracted different people to come in before they secured an interim to preach the Sunday morning services. And these individuals in true Baptist fashion had not coordinated anything between themselves. And, and so I said, well, how are things going at the church at Midway? And I heard the reply, well, we've heard four sermons in a row on the prodigal son. <laughs> so if you've been in a Baptist church for any length of time, some of you are very familiar with the vivid images that you've heard of this riches to rags back to riches story. You can almost see the dirt on the prodigal's disgraceful face. Noticing the lice crawling through his unkept hair and smelling the stench of the pigsty where there was no other place for him to lay his head. And then this desperation where he comes to his senses and goes back home to be met by the arthritic father with poor eyesight making out his familiar gate on the far horizon in his walk of shame back home where the father with not so nimble of knees in an unsteady rush pulls up his robe and with open arms welcomes him back and then we get to the crescendo God welcomes us back home if we will only come back home and, and we sing softly and tenderly and offer the benediction and then pass the fried chicken and the potato salad. Rinse and repeat the same cycle again next Sunday. Well, this morning, I ask your permission to suspend this familiar reading for just a minute as we consider the social dynamics in this very human story. In fact, I would encourage us to think about that story of the prodigal son. And again, if you want to uh, retrace those steps, it's found in the, 13th, the 15th chapter of the Gospel of Luke. But to think about it through the dynamics of family systems theory. Now, let me talk about First, how there is no such thing as a perfect family. That every family is dysfunctional. In fact, when you hear the word dysfunctional family, it's really a redundancy. There are some families that perhaps have healthier habits than others, but overall, families are made of humans. And humans are frail creatures and therefore are naturally dysfunctional. Comedian George Carlin once said, the other night I ate at a really nice family restaurant. Every table had an argument going. 
So how is the prodigal's family dysfunctional? Well, first, I would have you notice that the father might be caught into what is called triangling between these two sons. That while we have focused on the younger son's return home, what we really experience in the breadth of the parable is the dynamic of conflict between the two brothers. And the father being seen running, not only to get the young son back home, but to visit the older son who, in a huff, is not coming back to the welcoming party and joining the welcoming home reception. And triangling happens when two parties are in conflict who refuse to deal directly with one another and instead bring in a third party to try to mediate their relationship, sometimes trying to gain the support of this other party against the one in whom they're in conflict with, and people get pulled into this triangling where they're caught between these two poles of trying to gain peace between those who are not in functional, healthy relationships. You see this tension in the parable as this son says to the father, well, you're talking about your son, not my brother. And this happens in families and church work and and in therapy all the time. That oftentimes in marital therapy, you're trying to get two partners to communicate with each other when the communication is completely broken down. And the skill of the professional is always to try and de-triangle yourself. To not be the source of information between the two, but to get them talking to each other. And if there's a conflict, instead of being drawn into the conflict and just exasperating the tension, is to try to get the two principal parties to work together and speak together. And maybe that's part of what this father is seeking to do, pleading with the older brother to go back into the house and join the party. But there's other dysfunction at play, isn't there? Now, for those of you who are older siblings or have younger children, I know you've thought about this before. You don't have to confess it here before God and everybody, but I'm sure that you have often or at least occasionally criticize the action of the father welcoming the younger brother because you have said this. The younger children, my younger brother or sister, gets away with everything. They're never held into account. They are never called to responsibility. That the demands that have been placed on me as the older child has been far unfair, especially in comparison to the way in which my younger sibling can get away with just doing whatever they want. And in therapy, this kind of enabling behavior that is not positive is called codependency. It happens when responsible parties don't live up to their need to set clear expectations and boundaries and appropriate limits. 
and allow others, spouses or children or neighbors, to push them around, to have their own way with you, which is never truly a benefit to them or to you, and oftentimes drives those relationships into deeper forms of dependency and addiction. In the case of children who never learn consequences for bad behavior, they begin to believe they can get away with anything. We might see the college admission scandal that we've heard about recently on the news as a part of that dynamic, what we might call a affirmative action program for wealth and privilege. In fact, some are saying that the helicopter parenting that was described a few decades ago is no longer completely accurate. The helicopter parent was the parent who kind of hovered around even for their freshman, sophomore, college students and children by always being there ready to kind of intervene and rescue. What some social psychologists are noticing now is a dynamic they're calling bulldozing parenting. Parents that plow through any barrier their kids may face. And they intimidate any authority that comes up against their children to protect them and to clear for them any distraction from their progress as determined by this dysfunctional strategy. And at the end of the day, they're not developing capable kids believing in their own ability and capacity to, to meet any challenge, but only find highly selfish children who don't know what to do with the inevitable condi condition when someone says to them, no. So this poor family, we fear, might have coddled a younger brother into bad patterns, and perhaps the older brother is justified to suggest that this squandering of the younger brother is now being opened up to greater squandering by this unconditional welcome that the older, the father has placed upon the younger son. So we find help and are looking for help in other sources. And we have been talking this uh, season of Lent about B'nai Brown. And today we have been focused on her encouragement for us to choose gratitude over scarcity and fear. To develop a more grateful perspective. And I find importance in her ability to distinguish between joy and happiness and trying to understand they're not the same thing. For she suggests that happiness is based upon circumstance. Good things happening to you make you happy. And oftentimes what we want is happiness for things just to be okay. And when things are okay, then we are also okay with it. And we base that happiness upon circumstance, which is always changing, that is variable in its approach to our lives, that it is a roller coaster ride. 
and our experience is like a yo-yo. Sometimes we're up, sometimes we're down, and we play this game of I'm either happy or not happy based on how circumstances are coming on my shore, which is different than joy. Joy is deeper. It is developing a spiritual connection with something greater than ourselves and is cultivating this connection with others. For Christians, responding positively to Jesus' invitation of having a loving relationship with God and out of that loving relationship with God to change the way we see others is a practice of joy. And a practice demands a change of habit, a change of behavior. It's a call to action. And Brown offers this wonderful analogy about how just having a gratitude attitude isn't sufficient. By saying you may have an attitude that yoga is good. That it will increase flexibility and it'll be a spiritual practice of calming your spirit and it will help you focus yourself during the day and so you have a yoga attitude but what good is that attitude if you never put the skills of yoga into practice and gratitude similarly can just be thought of well i just need to be more grateful which will never really take root in your life unless you develop a practice of gratitude and so, as we encouraged last summer, keeping a gratitude diary, or remembering at the end of the day something you're grateful for, or finding ways in which you can develop this spiritual discipline of being grateful is a way of gaining greater health. Now, in the 11 o'clock service, we'll go into more detail about the older brother and how perhaps he is struggling with not being able to feel joy or gratitude in his life. So film at 11 if you are willing to stick around. But in closing for me here now, I find a description by my favorite theologian, Jürgen Bultmann, very helpful. For Bultmann writes, in The Trinity and the Kingdom, 1981, perhaps anticipating Brene Brown, that instead of talking about unconditional love, it may be more helpful to talk about vulnerable love. For unconditional love can feel too easy and convenient and laissez-faire, suggesting that that kind of love just says it doesn't really matter what you do. And it doesn't really matter what you've done, God will accept you anyway. And the helpful lens of changing it from unconditional love to vulnerable love still keeps with it the character of unconditional acceptance, but it's alongside the knowledge that vulnerable love comes with risk. That when you put yourself out there in love, that there is danger. And what we are being taught as we walk with Jesus to Holy Week and to the cross is how God is willing to allow God's perspective on our life to not be one of condemnation, 
but God is willing to take the condemnation upon God's self. And that God is willing to love even if it makes God appear vulnerable. And that when we choose to love, we are opening up that vulnerability. Now we don't know what happens in the story of the prodigal son on the next day or in the following month or in the succeeding year. Hopefully they come to a greater sense of unity and wholeness out of the return of the younger son. We don't know if they stay in a function of dysfunction for the duration of their relationships. But part of what God is revealing in Jesus' story is this ability and capacity and desire to pursue love even when it hurts. And to recognize that vulnerable love is truly the character of the divine love. And that we are invited into a knowledge that some of the situations we're in we may never fix. And that we can't control how people are going to react. And we can't decide for them what they should do. But we will still persist in our ability to love them even in their dysfunction. And we will remember that we too are people of dysfunction. And that our love comes humbly, not as a source of authority, not as a great wisdom uh, prophet that can tell them everything they need to do and how they need to do it, but to offer powerful, risky tangible, resilient love. It's not afraid. That's not pushing an outcome. But simply loves because that's the nature of the person who is seeking to love. And that I know that makes me vulnerable. But it also calls me to the best way I can figure out how to live. So for those who are far from God... There is glad welcome. And for those who are near to God in body, but far away from God in soul, we can celebrate our lostness, our place, as a child also coming home. And so we are humble. And we take risk. And we open up our hearts. And we open up our arms. And we persist in love. And along the way, God saves us. I invite you to sing with me as we respond together this morning. Number 183, come to me, a weary traveler. Come to me, oh. 
response this morning. You've got the opportunity now to sit and to pray quietly, to reflect on the quote and on the icon that you'll find on the back of your orders of worship on the screens. Or if you want to come forward and you want to light a candle, uh, you're welcome to do that as a symbol of your prayer to God this morning. Before we do that, I'll play quietly for a moment and you'll have an opportunity to respond. We'll read together our call to prayer. Listen to God's whisper, unraveling our fears. Listen to God's whisper, unraveling our sin. Listen to God's whisper, unraveling our pain. Listen to God's whisper, unraveling our shame. Listen to God's whisper, unraveling.
we are grateful that you welcome us home. No matter where we are, no matter where we've been, no matter where these roads have taken us to. But you sit and wait for us, God. And you welcome us back home again and again and again. We ask for the grace to be able to see your abundance around us. To see the grace that you have invited us to, God. The spark of the divine that you have placed within us. The spark of the divine that you have placed within those next to us. spark of the divine in every soul, every human being. That we could see the, the beauty that is there. And join you in your joy. By flinging the doors open wide and welcome. Thank you for your grace, for your acceptance, and for your love. I invite you now to sing with me. You'll find the words your orders of worship. There is enough. You are enough. We are enough. I am enough. Here's how it goes. There is enough. Are enough. 
stand together one more time as we sing once more, You Are Enough. So if you're able, stand and we'll sing. And let this be our song of sending as we remember, as we go into this world, that God is present with us and is enough.